0: Welcome to the Show Me Education podcast. Join us as we share best practices and show you the amazing and meaningful work of educators across Missouri and beyond. The mission of the Show Me Education podcast is to share stories that resonate with you and allow you to walk away feeling energized and inspired to improve education in your own community. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy the learning.
1: Welcome to the Show Me Education podcast. I'm Betsy Reidenauer, your resident Missouri teacher development system specialist. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of visiting with my colleagues from the Central Regional Professional Development Center, Joe Beidler and Nancy Rogers. They are both positive behavior intervention support consultants. In this episode, we'll discuss classroom management strategies, specifically those that teachers can use with students after those extended school breaks. I hope you learn something new. Enjoy. Welcome to my PBIS friends, uh, Joe Beidler and Nancy Rogers. I'd like to give you a chance to talk about um, your experience in the field of education. Nancy, if you want to start us off, just give us a little background.
2: Sure. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name, as Betsy said, is Nancy Rogers. I uh, began teaching back in the olden days of 1981, uh, taught Uh, special ed in St. Louis first and then moved to Warrensburg in 84, taught special ed uh, until about 2000. And then I became a principal of a kindergarten building. Uh, Loved it, loved it, was there for 12 years. Um, I retired and decided that I did not like retirement. So I went to work at the university, taught classes at the university, and then the opportunity Came open for a position at um, the RPDC in Warrensburg at, for PBIS, and I've been working there for the past six years. So I've been in education about 42 years, love working with behavior, love working with teachers, love working with kids. So All right. Thank
1: yeah, thank you. Nancy was actually my, my oldest two children's principal when they were in kindergarten too. So Nancy and I go way back. So yes, we do. Yeah, it's fun to work with you now. All right, <laughs> Joe, will you give us a little bit of your history?
0: Yeah, thank you, Betsy. And I appreciate the opportunity to, to visit with your audience today. So what I'd like people to know, beside what you can read in the show notes, is about the lens through which I look uh, in classroom management. I'm passionate about talking about classroom management and I uh, uh, and, and do so every opportunity that I get. As a teacher, I was privileged to work with eight student teachers in my program. I was a band teacher for 16 years, so uh, it it was really a privilege to get to work with the next generation of teachers. Then I became a building principal for a dozen or so years, and there were many student teachers that came through our building during that time, as well as many new teachers who began their career with us. And um, in those experiences of those student teachers and those new teachers and frankly experienced teachers, I began to notice some patterns and some interesting things about classroom management. And with very few exceptions, all of those people struggled with classroom management somehow. We all do that at the beginning of our career. I certainly did. And and not many people that I met didn't struggle. So uh, through that um, and realizing those patterns and, and those conclusions about classroom management, it drew me and our staff to several things. One of them was the study of professional learning communities, which our school building went through, our district went through, as well as the study of positive behavior supports. So um, both of those things um, helped me become qualified for the job that that Nancy and I do now, and those are uh, coaching support team members for district continuing initiative for behavior and positive behavior supports consultants. those are the kinds of things that that uh, kind of uh, formulate the lens through which I look and how I'm able to talk about classroom management and be so excited about classroom management.
1: All right, thank you. I'm I'm glad that we have this opportunity to talk about um, PBIS strategies specifically. I mean, there's a lot of research-based classroom management strategies, but I really I want to focus in on on your expertise from both of you. So, can you just give us in a nutshell? what PBIS means and how maybe it is um, different from other classroom management strategies or uh, discipline models that, other, that districts might use? Joe, will, will you answer that?
0: Yeah, sure. So um, we like to say that positive behavior supports is a framework. It's not a program, it's not a strategy. It is a set of things, practices, systems, and outcomes that schools can organize contextually to uh, benefit their students and staff. So in Missouri, school-wide positive behavior supports is the behavioral side of the MTSS triangle or multi-tiered systems to support. We are response to intervention for social competence. We put a lot of energy into supporting students and staff at the tier one or universal level. And the more students that we realize, the more students that respond to tier one or universal interventions, the more capacity we build in our school systems to deal with those students that need intervention at the upper tiers. Um, So think of it this way. If we increase the number of students that respond to tier one universals from 80 to 90%, we've effectively cut the number of students that need tier two and tier three interventions. So it's all about being proactive. It's all about being preventative. And it's about organizing interventions into a framework that schools can use to make things work for them in their district. It's different for every district, every building, and every classroom for that matter. But uh, that's PBS in a nutshell. It's a framework on which schools can organize their interventions.
1: As you were describing that, the word that stuck out to me was context. And the topic today that I really want to talk about is the context of returning to school after Long breaks, extended breaks, whether that is a weekend for some kids, that's a long break for them. Um, or after long vacations, summer vacations, holiday breaks, spring vacations, those kinds of things. And so in that context, how do we reset our expectations for the kids and how do we get them back on track and, and ourselves on back on track to reinforce
2: that, our
1: expectations? Um, Nancy, you want to weigh in on that? Sure.
2: Um, you know, we all like to know what's ahead of us. Um, I don't think there's very many people that like surprises. Mm-hmm. Um, some of us may be checklist people, some of us may not be, but all in all, it's nice to know what's going to happen. So as a teacher, having those expectations ready for the kids, uh letting them know what truly is expected. What are the rules? What are the routines? What are the policies? And Let's do a little bit of practice. Um, You know, we may all think that we know what to do because we started in September or August and we're good at it, but we had that break. So now let's have a little bit of practice with um, how we come into the hallway, how we uh, go to lunch, how we do some certain things. And I think that's kind of the key that a lot of our programs that uh, work with behaviors don't quite have that reteaching and that practice piece in it. And that's what we um, do a lot with PBIS. We say that once you had those expectations and and they're listed somewhere and kids are familiar with them, then let's do some practicing. Let's do some role playing. Let's get good at it. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would say. And I, you know what? I had to do that for myself after the holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, just get ready.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I know as a teacher, it is, it's just this retraining your brain as an adult, you know, and so for kids, we know that they need that, that practice piece. So how, what is the suggestion then? And Joe, I'll let you answer this one. How, what is the suggestion then after these extended breaks? And, and like I mentioned before, for some kids, it could just be the weekend. It could just be, or if they're absent one day and they come back on, you know, they're absent on Tuesday, they come back on Wednesday and they need a refresher. So when we're talking about response to intervention or multi-tiered systems of support and wanting to get to that 80, 85% of kids that are on track, well, that 15% of kids that are not on track, how do we individualize as teachers? It's hard to pinpoint kids and pull them out and practice individually when we have 20 other kids that need our, our attention too. So how do we individualize that support for them when they come back from breaks and they need that reset?
0: So one of the things I like to do is reframe the same behavior questions into academics. So like uh, I would ask a third grade teacher, how often are you going to be teaching um, the principles of multiplication? Are you going to do that August 25th and January 4th and call it good? Mm-hmm. Probably not. You're going mm-hmm. to support student with their needs, and you're gonna measure their needs throughout the year. And when they start lacking in fluency, we ramp up our support. We call that scaffolding. So we don't often think about that in terms of behavioral skills that we want students to master. So a lot of schools have a matrix of expected uh, behaviors or even in classrooms. So those are behavioral skills we want students to master. So the question becomes, what do we do each and every day to help those kids build uh, skill fluency Uh, in those particular, we call them replacement behaviors or what we want them to do instead of the negative behaviors. So uh, we look at that in terms of universally, what can we do every day for that? What support do students need in order to demonstrate fluency in those skills? So the more energy we put in at that level, the more capacity we have to deal with those students at the tier two and tier three level. The good news is that after looking at years and years of data, In Missouri, particularly in elementary schools, about 93% of our students respond to tier one universal behavior strategies. So that leaves us a lot of room to deal with that other 7% that are gonna be in tier two and tier three. So we constantly beat the drum about supporting universally the behavior of students with, uh, Nancy mentioned expectations and teaching expectations and encouraging and how to professionally correct. And we found that putting our energy there increases our capacity to deal with those tier two and tier three kids. So like, if you think of the triangle that represents hundred percent of our kids, if I walk into your building tomorrow and say, hey, in our building, we walk safely. This is how we get around in the hallway and I show them how to do it. And uh, voila, 85 to 90% of the kids are gonna walk safely because this adult said it, they know it's a rule or they understand the reason for that rule. So we know that there's gonna be a, a percentage of kids that didn't hear me right. They don't understand what walk safely means, they weren't weren't listening, uh, and they need some extra time and extra practice. So that makes it a little bit easier to identify that smaller group of kids when we know what we want them to teach and we see that they're not doing that. So we give them some extra instruction and provide them with some extra time and some extra practice, as Nancy mentioned. And then we know that there's a small percentage of students, three to five percent that are tier three. And they're going to need some individual attention. So that's when we pull out the big guns and concentrate specifically one kid at a time, right? So we need uh, a lot of energy for the tier two and tier three kids because when we go to behavior workshops, those are the kids they're talking about, right? Yes. When a teacher says, I got 40% of my kids that need tier two interventions, our ears perk up and we get excited because we know that's really not a tier two problem. That's a tier one problem that we can Mm -hmm. fix. And then create more space to do that. So getting back to your question after breaks. So we would submit that we support behavioral skill learning and support building students fluency when that fluency gives us evidence that it's waning. And it's typically at the beginning of the school year after they've had a summer off after thanksgiving break after christmas break after long weekends we know that we're in the season of snow days and you know Mm -hmm. some years it feels like every every day is a monday because we just had three days off so anytime we can take the opportunity so to scaffold their fluency is a positive time to do that
1: so this may seem like a tangent but really it's it's not i want to talk about the elephant that's been hanging around in the room for almost two years now. And that is COVID. <laughs> and we know that, um, you know, the kids, of course, had that huge long break of five months, you know, in some cases before they went back to school when when school was dismissed in, in 2020 for, you know, starting in March. And then coming back and have your experience in schools. And I know that sometimes teachers come to you for workshops, but you're in schools a lot and in the trenches with the teachers So what have you heard, what are you observing, and what are the challenges that teachers are still facing, the the repercussions of that huge amount of time that kids were at home? And and how are you helping them with that? How are you supporting them with that?
0: One of the big trends that we're seeing is from kindergarten and first grade students, Um, having their last two years completely disrupted from the normal pipeline. You know, kids usually go to some kind of preschool, then they're ready for kindergarten, and they're more prepared for first grade. So we have students that had a totally disrupted three or four or five-year-old year. And the schools that are dealing effectively with their problems have gone back to the idea of here's some expectations behaviorally that we want our students to have. And we're gonna support the teachers in building that fluency. And we're gonna do everything we can to support the students in those. Because those are the things that are gonna drive teachers crazy. It's the off the wall behaviors, the things that they're not used to seeing. Um, But a lot of schools are struggling with that because these uh, kids haven't had the natural development that they've normally had. And they spent maybe a year or two in online instruction. So it all boils down to what are our expectations? How can we teach those things? What are the procedures and routines that our students need to learn to be successful in our buildings? And I think that is as and sometimes more important than the content that we get stuck in our content cycles and we have scope and sequence and and pacing guides that we have to keep up with. But the frustrating thing is if if they don't have the ears to hear or they don't have their pockets in their seats, then it's just going to be a a frustrating cycle of, of disappointment.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I that that's was my thought and I was going to play devil's advocate there as you know, I was I've only been a classroom teacher and I wasn't an administrator but as from my experience that is that's the thing. It's like, "Oh my gosh, I'm practicing all these behavior expectations, but I've got to get to decimals. The kids have to know how to multiply decimals." And so where the, where is that balance because there is that learning, it's not really learning loss after a long weekend, but it's that I have to reteach this now because it was Friday when I taught it. Now it's Monday and I need to give a refresher on the academic part. And so when you're talking to teachers, how do you reiterate that and encourage them to know that, you know, it's that chicken and egg question. what, What do we, what do I do first?
2: What's my focus
1: going to be? So what do you think, Nancy?
2: Well, Um, You heard Joe say the word frequency a lot and fluency a lot. And so when we talk with schools about academic as well as behavior, they go hand in hand. There's no doubt um, if a child is having difficulty with the academic side, it's going to show through behaviorally. Same thing behaviorally is going to show through academically. So helping a teacher know that they can work on both things at the same time. Those expectations are so important to know. uh, How am I going to sit in the seat so I can learn better? How am I going to respond to the teacher? Is the teacher going to have other ways that I can respond to possibly something that she has said because we're not all the same? So the, the eight teaching practices that we talk about a lot, I think, incorporate that behavior as well as good, good foundational teaching. And, um, you know, we all know that those kids are hard. They're hard, even when they're okay, they're hard because they take a lot of energy. But making sure that they have the tool set to be in the school community is so important, um, along with giving the teachers that tool set to work with them. So, um, you know, Joe's getting into the... um, the university classes and teaching more on classroom management, letting teachers know, this is how students are going to act. It's not been that long ago that we haven't been into the classrooms Mm -hmm. and been teachers ourselves. So giving them a toolbox to uh, hopefully become a new teacher with, but also giving those veteran teachers ideas and letting them know this is normal, Uh, But just teach it as relentlessly as you are teaching academic behavior and academic do go hand in hand. I hope I've answered that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I, you have, you have, it, it is, it's that constant reiteration of there has to be a balance and there has to be, you know, we have to be teaching behavior because they are skills. And Joe mentioned that before too. There it's two, two types of skills. We've got the content skills and then we have the behavior skills. And we have to constantly be teaching those at the same time. So I'm glad that you mentioned um, new teachers, because that is my charge right now with um, the RPDC. And that is to help recruit new teachers and retain new teachers and keep them in the field of education, which is a really difficult thing to do for lots of different reasons right now. Um, So pertaining to that subject of new teachers, what is the number one thing, the number one piece of advice that you when you encounter new teachers that you give them regarding behavior management. and even and specifically, because they, that is not something that I learned when I was in college of how to handle behaviors after they've been, you know, after you think they've got they've learned everything. We trained in August, they know all of my expectations. And then you get to that three day weekend after parent teacher conferences. And they come back and they're crazy. They're weird. It's like, what in the world happened? I thought we had this down. So that's something that a new teacher doesn't realize is going to happen. And so what is your piece of advice to them so they're prepared for that?
2: Now, one thing that I was just going to say was, um, as a new teacher, I would just like to tell them to relax a little bit (laughs) and to look at things as preventative because, I can guarantee that a teacher, as soon as those kids come into the classroom, they know what kids they're gonna have to spend a little bit more time with, uh, when it becomes with behavior or academic. So being more preventive and looking ahead, getting your toolbox ready for those things that you know truly is coming up. Don't be caught uh, in that limbo of saying, oh, I don't have anything to work with those kids on, but, um, and they need to relax because teachers need to rely on their other peers. Um, They can't come in knowing everything. Look at some of those seasoned teachers, look at some of those buddy teachers that they have, go to their principal about some ideas, but be open and don't ingest everything that they're on an island by themselves. Yeah, those kids sense
1: the fear, that's for sure. (laughs) <laughs> they'll know. If you're not relaxed, they're going to know and they'll attack. You, you got it. <laughs> All right, Joe, what were you going to say? Your best piece of advice.
0: One of the things that drew me to this work was the idea that better classroom management can lead to a lower stress level for the adults that are running the classrooms. And you know, as well as I and our audience does, that close to half of the people that start the business are gone within five years. And that's mm-hmm. an unsustainable statistic. And, uh, so I look at it like this, we have a unique opportunity for 13 or 14 years to recruit our replacements. So what can we do in those 13 or 14 years that those students are staying in our classrooms, you know, like, so where are the teachers right now that will be teaching 10 years from now? Well, they're in high school and middle school, right? Mm-hmm. And where are next the next generation of administrators? They're teaching in our, our classrooms right now. So These are the things that we need to think about as as we go through this. So in terms of the things that teachers need to know, number one, there are evidence-based practices that you can use and apply in your classroom that will increase the likelihood that students behave the way you want them to and decrease the likelihood that you get inappropriate and unexpected behavior. We know that's true because somebody's researched them and the evidence is overwhelming that there are particularly eight of these uh, effective teaching and learning practices that a classroom teacher can employ that will do all those things for them so like those are the truths of the classroom you know our job is to bring that professional development to people who are practicing teachers and it's also our job to use our voice to help uh, universities that prepare students to realize that there are eight effective teaching and learning practices that affect behavior and Um, you know, there's a drumbeat there that we can keep going on and on about, but I've seen the evidence when it improves the lives of teachers and improves the practice. And when teachers are surveyed, when they leave the business, one of the high vote getters is classroom management, students don't behave. And what if we can do some simple things to avert that? And there are some simple things that we can do. And I can't just start with just one thing. So there's a couple other things. Uh, Another thing that I think uh, staff need to be well-versed with is understanding how to think functionally in the classroom. So uh, you know just a quick behavior primer all behavior serves a purpose it has a function it's a form of communication and once we understand what that function is whether students are trying to seek something or avoid something whether they're trying to get something or escape from something we can design our classroom environments we call that Manipulating the antecedents and manipulating the consequences to work with those functions of behavior to make our lives a lot easier and make the lives, the educational lives of our students better. So that's a big thing. We have effective teaching and learning practices and function of behavior. And probably the third thing that I think every teacher needs to become skilled with is a collaborative conversation that effectively uses discipline or behavioral data in that conversation. So, what tools do we need to collect effective? data so we can make good decisions about those things. So if I were uh, in charge of designing a curricula for pre-service teachers, they would include heavy doses of evidence-based teaching practices, functional thinking in the classroom, and data-based decision-making on data and integrated uh, academic topics. So there's uh, three for the price of alone.
1: No, that's great. That's great. The What you mentioned at the beginning, your first point was, you know, thinking about who, who are our teachers going to be 12, 15 years from now? And those are the kids that are in middle school and high school right now. And so one of the things that a good classroom management, research-based classroom management plan that teachers, if they're employing that in their classrooms, then they make the kids feel safe. And that is really, really important. And so I think that modeling that for the students that are in middle school and high school right now, that's a great recruitment tool. Because if they feel safe in that environment, if their teacher has a really good grasp on reinforcing proper behavior, then they think th- this is this is good. This is something that I might explore for for my life, for my profession. And so it's really kind of a twofold thing. The teacher has a lower stress level. The kids have a lower stress level. They feel safe, and it's appealing. It's appealing. So it's there's a lot of factors. When we, when we kind of revamp what, how we think about classroom management, what, what we're doing. It's, it's really, it could be a recruitment tool too.
0: You know, interesting that you say that. When I talk with particularly new teachers and we discover ones that have some better skills at classroom management, when you talk to them, they have come from buildings or through teachers' classrooms that didn't struggle with classroom management and they were doing the things that, that good classroom managers do. So they imitate those, you know, we all teach as we were taught until we learn something new and better. So if, uh, you know, I I realized that when I started my teaching career in 1989, I was reflecting on my classroom experience going all the way back to 1971. Mm -hmm. You know, here it's 2021, and still reflecting on what those teachers did, but we, we do the things we've, you know, been taught or we experience until we learn to do something better.
1: Mm-hmm. Which is the same thing that we're preaching about to for our students. You know how they behave at home is one thing, and how they how what we expect them to do at school is something different in a lot of cases. So it's we're just modeling that now. So I, yeah, it's just this full circle that I think could be really valuable. All right, one last plug for PBIS. Where can our listeners find websites, resources? help from each of you, where where can they go, Nancy?
2: Well, I can tell you that uh, you certainly could get a hold of Joe or I at uh, PBIS uh, through the RPDC. We're listed on the RPDC site. Uh, Each uh, county or region, I guess I should say, there are nine regions. And so each region has an RPDC that people can go to. And uh, Joe, I'll let you do the resources. You're good at uh, saying that. But teachers, just have a good time. Um, and like I said, just be sure to get a hold of us or rely on somebody to help you with these behaviors and, and with teaching. And, and Joe and I are there for you. And I know Betsy is too. We want more teachers.
0: And so uh, thank you, Nancy. She mentioned an important thing. that We have a statewide network of professionals that do what we do. There's about 25 of us around the state in, in your RPDC region. So reach out to them. That's their job. And they love to do work like that. But if you're just looking for something to do an in independent study-wise, um, you can go to pbismissouri.org. That's our statewide website. All of our, res- all of our resources are free and available <laughs> 24 hours a day for you. All you have to do is on it. Uh, If you want to dig even more deeply and look at the research base and the evidence base behind many of these things, you can look at our national partner. It is pbis.org. That's our National Center on Positive Behavioral Interventions and Supports. It's run through the University of Oregon with a huge grant from the Office of Special Education Programs, uh, and that's also a partial funder of our positions along with the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, University of Central Missouri, and all of the RPDCs around, around the state. Uh, so between those two places, you can find a lot of information. If you want to study some things specifically, like the eight effective teaching and learning practices that I've mentioned several times, or functional behavior, functional thinking in the classroom, or uh, the third thing that I mentioned would be uh, database decision-making, you can go to moedusail, M-O-E-D-U-S-A-I-L dot O-R-G, click on facilitator materials, and just go down through and look at the list of course materials That are specifically designed to help educators learn these particular things there is a lot of information both academically and behaviorally available for you there or if your school or district is involved uh, and has access to the virtual learning platform through uh, the department of elementary and secondary education get it uh, uh, at uh, the desi website then that same material is there and that affords teachers the opportunity to uh, professionally develop themselves and learn, and practice about these specific things that, that we keep talking about.
1: Great. Great resources. I'll make sure I include all of those websites um, and other things that were mentioned in the show notes as well. Thank you both for joining me and sharing all of your knowledge, a wealth of knowledge between the two of you, and lots and lots of years of, ex- of experience in education. I appreciate you both, and I will talk to you soon. Good Thank luck. Thank you, Betsy. Okay, thanks. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. As I mentioned, you can access the resource mentioned in the show notes. And if you have any ideas for upcoming episodes for the Show Me Education podcast, you can contact me at rideanhour at ucmo.edu or start a conversation with me on Twitter at at @betsride. that's B-E-T-Z-R-I-D-E. Until next time, enjoy the learning.
0: Thank you for listening to the Show Me Education podcast. Be sure to share your learning from the show with others. The Show Me Education podcast is a collaborative project between the regional professional development centers of Missouri with a vision of sharing best practices and showing you the amazing and meaningful work of educators across Missouri and beyond. Please subscribe to the show to catch all the wonderful content coming your way.